morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. And that's page 1177 in your pew Bibles in front of you. Here the passage says from 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your very ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Whilst I sort out the general arrangement up here, why don't you turn to the person next to you and discuss whether Plymouth Argyle have a chance in the second legs of the Plymouth, uh, the, uh, the playoffs. That's great. So I hope the conclusion to your conversation was a positive one. Brian, in the nine o'clock service, actually prayed during the intercessions for Argyle. So we're hoping that his prayers will be answered later. Although it was a very nuanced prayer, he didn't quite pray that Argyle would win, but that God would bless the way they played football on the day. I take that as a pretty much guaranteed win for Argyle. So Portsmouth, unlucky, God is on our side. That's some awful theology. You can hear go, who is this guy that's up the front? So this morning, we, we finish our series uh, looking at life on the front line. How have people found it? Have you enjoyed it? Yeah? Brilliant. Well, we've, we've been receiving some texts, um, emails from people, people rushing up to us after the service and going, Ross, it was so cool. Like, you guys have been talking about this front line stuff. And we've been looking to see where God is at work in our everyday lives. And do you know what? We saw him do this and, and God was saying this. And we were in conversation with someone. And they were like, do you know Jesus then? 
And we've had all these cool conversations and opportunities that have arisen out of it. So we're excited if this is a culture that we're beginning to, to develop and grow in here at Mutley Baptist Church. So let me kind of summarize this series briefly, um, and then we'll, we'll move on to what we're looking at this morning. So just for those that aren't aware, maybe it's your first time here in the church and you're completely unaware what we're on about. Life on the Frontline is a series in which we've been um, looking at perspective change in which we go from maybe seeing the more important things we do to that of being stuff in our church network, in our church community, during church activities, and saying actually the whole of our lives are important to God. The whole of our lives matter to God. So not just the actual church stuff we do, but the stuff outside, in our everyday lives, the normality of life that we live, the supermarkets, the coffee shops we go to, the workplaces we're at, the mothers and toddlers groups, the leisure centers, all these things matter to him because there's opportunity to see what God is doing and join him on the mission he's already at work on in this world, right? And we've been looking at this life of, of this language of frontline, and that is our frontline, essentially anywhere that's beyond the church community and church activities. And this is by no means saying that, that these things are, are bad, like I'd be out of a job if we were saying that, and you know, not that not if it wasn't, I wouldn't challenge it, but that's not the point. The point is that we're not saying these things are bad, but that the whole of our lives matter to God. We're just broadening our understanding of what God is doing in the world. So we've been calling us as, as a church to be whole life missionary disciples, to go out there on our front line and realize that every one of us is called to be on mission for God. It's not just about, about the missionaries who do amazing work overseas and here in the UK, but it's about every one of us grasping the fact that we have got a call on our lives by Jesus to tell others about him and to spread his message of love and justice to this world. And in a couple of months' time, we're going to be continuing this series but in another format, looking at fruitfulness on the front line. So for these couple of months, we've laid this concept and you may be starting to grapple with it in your, in your everyday life, but actually it's still feeling a bit broad, and you're not really sure what this looks like. So in these coming months, we're going to start to explore how this looks practically. We're going to be asking seven particular questions. The first, we're saying, am I, and then the first question is, am I making good work? Am I modeling godly character? Am I ministering grace and love? Am I making culture? Am I making disciples? Am I a mouthpiece for truth and justice, and am I a mouthpiece for the gospel? So in a couple of months' time, we'll be exploring some of these questions in a series entitled Fruitfulness on the Frontline to take this whole concept further and see if we are applying these things in our everyday lives. But before then, the last message in the series is entitled The Real Enemy, The Real Mission. Sounds quite, it's got a bit of a sense to it, isn't it? The Real Enemy, The Real mission. When I was a boy, um, I grew up uh, on the Narnia books. Anyone, anyone remember the, the old school Narnia books, before you had the new movies and all the cruel, you know, the, the old school stuff? And my mum used to read them in the hope that one day I would love literature and really enjoy books. Um, I had my personal narrator. Why would I read myself? My mum would read them to me. So I enjoyed the books, but I really enjoyed the movies, the first ones when they came out. I loved the idea that, that these, these Victorian kids who were bored in their school and their home could walk into a wardrobe and enter this entire world where, where good versus evil and baddies and there's goodies and there's talking lions who are like kings and there's beavers who you want to be your best friend and there's half animals, half... Oh, it's so cool. There's all these different things going on. And as I got older, it was um, Star Wars. Remember the old... Again, it's the old school Star Wars stuff with Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader... My brother and I had the, the pull-out swords with the lights on, and the ones where you hit them, they made a noise. My friend and I, so obsessed with Star Wars, 
actually used to build dens all the time, as boys do. And we'd go in the dens, and we had the Tazos, the little pogs, the disc-shaped Tazos, with different pictures of all the Star Wars characters on. And we were in love with Princess Leia. So, so I remember we'd go into these dens and kiss the Tazos. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> we'd, we'd kiss this Tazo of Princess Leia. It doesn't relate to the sermon, but it's weird. <laughs> and then the, the second, then later on in my teens, it was Lord of the Rings. And I never read the books, but I loved the movies. I loved the, the elves, the dwarves, the orcs, and these great battle scenes that were created. Can anyone hazard a guess as to why I'm starting with this? Any, any idea what these, what these stories have in common? That's not rhetorical. I'm throwing it out there. Shout it out. Good and evil. Oh, every time. I was hoping we'd have more every time someone gets it. Brilliant. This whole battle between good and evil. And something that, to some extent, we, we see mimicked in, in reality, don't we? With this idea of light and darkness. It's not just necessarily because we're, we're Christians that we acknowledge good and evil, but it's something that even in conversation with people who would pro- profess not to have a faith, I've been chatting to them and they said, yeah, I, I don't get this idea of a good God, Ross, but I understand spirits. I get there's like maybe evil spirits, there's spiritual powers at work, but I can't understand what you mean by God. That doesn't make sense to me. Because somehow they've grasped that in the world, through looking around, there is evil and there's a good. We can make that clear distinction, can't we? Clear distinction between the things that are good, the things that are bad, the things that are light, the things that are dark. It seems to be mimicked in reality. And the argument that I often hear is, well, if you have a good God, then, then why is there evil? And actually, the very premise of that question in the first place falls apart because the very fact we have evil means we have, have to have good. Because how would you know evil unless it was in light of good? How would you know light unless you had darkness? If evil was all there is and there wasn't any good, then why would we make a distinction between that and good? So if we have evil spirits, then surely there's got to be some kind of good spiritual force. Surely there's got to be some kind of good God. So I say this at the start because the, the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul begins with this text in which he sets our minds to focus on this idea of good and evil. He says, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think this is where we maybe had a bit of confusion about the frontline language. And actually, when was Lizzie was on the sofa the other day in the evening service, talking about frontline stuff, she challenged me to go away and think about why we use this language of frontline. And I think one of the things we're trying to, to get across is not that we are the goodies and everyone else out there is the baddies, but that, that, that we are, are fighting for a good God. We are on the side of a God who loves us. We are on the side of a God who is light and shines his light through us. And our battle is not against people, but against the spiritual forces of evil that pervade this world and corrupt good for evil. Are people okay with that kind of language? Because I find when you talk about spiritual realities, I can even see on people's faces at the moment, you kind of divide people. There's some that that are comfortable with this, There's some that almost see spiritual stuff as linked to everything and others that aren't comfortable with this language. For example, um, to one extreme, there's the the idea that that the spiritual and the natural, there's no gap between the two. The two coexist as one. Animism is the the phrase you'd use. And when I went to Africa um, about three years ago, I went to Kenya to visit a missionary there. And I think I've told you about various explorations that I have with this guy. But we went to different indigenous churches. 
And we turned up to these churches that were kind of very plain. This particular one was a white robe church, very plain on the outside. There was a platform on, on, on my right where you had pastors and bishops were sitting in the seats there in white robes with a red cross on. Some various members in the congregation would also have these white robes and red cross on. And the rest of the congregation was seated on really roughly constructed pews. So I was sitting at the back of this church service and just observing what was going on. And, and they stood up, and the first thing the congregation did was they opened the doors at the back of the church. And everyone started waving their arms like this in a, in a unified action. Kids were involved as well. And the idea was, I was talking to the person who was translating for me, was that they were ridding the room of any spirits that were around at the time. And then during the service, one of the guys um, started convulsing and speaking in another language and, and saying random words in a different voice. And he bounced around the floor, arriving on the floor, and then started speaking. And as he started speaking, the whole congregation bowed a knee to listen. Because the white robe churches are a massive mix of African traditional religion and, and the Christian faith. So syncretism is, is involved in these churches. And what was fascinating about that was the more I, I, I experienced this culture, the more I saw that there wasn't a distinction at all between the natural and the spiritual. And you come here to the UK, and it's completely different, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just worlds apart. Sometimes the gap is so big that we would even almost do away with the spiritual. Because can we at times be arrogant enough to maybe think that the spiritual realities are kind of archaic and, and for other people and, and not for us in the, in the enlightened West? I think we can certainly think this sometimes. I know that in my, in my worldview, and what I do every day, I sometimes forget the spiritual realities that are going on around. So we have these two extremes. Where's the balance? It seems to be that we acknowledge that there is an enemy, Satan, that there are powers of evil, that we're aware of this, that we're cautious about this, that we acknowledge this is going on, but not that we obsess about it. Not that it becomes something that consumes our mind, that we're constantly worried that a demon's going to jump out and slap us in the face when we're not looking, or something like that, that, that we obsess over the spiritual forces of evil because we worship a good God. Amen? A good God who is bigger than this Satan, who has the victory, who has the victory over the powers of evil. But it's, it's, it's important, particularly in light of the passage that we're looking at this morning, that we are aware of these spiritual forces that are at work. And before moving on, it's important um, to understand this term, rulers and authorities, because it could be perceived that Paul was talking about the fact that rulers and authorities are all bad and evil. I mean, if we're talking about Donald Trump, you may have an argument, but I'm, no, I'm not making a political statement. Oh, yeah, I did a little bit. I did a little bit. But the rulers and authorities, that they are somehow bad and evil of themselves, but it's the spiritual forces that potentially at work around them. John Stott puts it well. He says, every good gift of God can be perverted for evil use. Evil spirits and forces can work things for bad. They can change good to bad. So, in light of this kind of dark context, in light of this, this great battle that seems to be going on in the world around us, Paul calls us to put on the armor of God, to equip ourselves. And in the back of his mind, he has this idea of a Roman soldier. So if you've seen the film like Gladiator, or you've seen the film The Eagle, and all these various movies with Roman soldiers, I love the Roman soldiers, the, the shield walls they used to do, the battle scenes, their, 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 their way of doing warfare is still being studied today in, in certain army contexts. It's incredible and fascinating the way they fought. And he had in mind a, a Roman soldier such as that on the screen behind me, if you've not seen any of these films. And he talks about the pieces of armor that adorn the Roman soldier and how then we could think of these things as spiritual armor and how we as Christians could equip ourselves. 
So I want to briefly just look at some of these pieces of armor and what they could mean in a spiritual sense for us today. So, firstly, he says, apply the belt of truth. And, 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 and in older translations, it would talk about girding up your loins, which for me kind of took away about the whole kind of manly Roman soldier thing. So I'm not a big fan of it, but it does make sense of the text because the belt of truth would have been there to, to hold the robe in place, to hold the undergarments in place. There is the sense that that connects everything together, the belt of truth being understood in two ways. One, in the sense that there's this sense in the Greek of this understanding that we are to be people of truth people of integrity who speak truth in all situations against the lies of the rest of the world and the present darkness. But at the same time, there's a sense in which we are to hold firm, steadfast to the truths of the gospel, right? The truths of our faith. There seems to be two senses to this particular piece of armor. So you've woken up, you've strapped the belt of truth on, now it's the breastplate of righteousness, which I'm informed also has a piece for the back as well. So if you were thinking, oh man, my back's on, no, your back is prepped. Paul knew what he was talking about. And this breastplate of righteousness, again, similar to the belt of truth, has a kind of double meaning. So in regards to righteousness, um, it can be a fancy word that we can almost be scared of, but the sense of righteousness is that we are made right with God. In what Jesus has done for us, we are made right with God. We are in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done for us. So there's that sense, but there's also the sense of of this idea of, of living a right life. That seems to come out of this particular piece of armor. Living right, but also being right with God. Having security in the fact that we are right in our relationship with him. So belt of truth on, breastplate of righteousness on. Then we put on the shoes for the gospel of peace, which make perfect sense in the wonderful sun we're, moving, we're having at the moment because Paul would have been referring to the sandals, the caliga, that the Roman soldiers would have worn. And these, are, um, these were fashionable for a while, weren't they, for women? Do people remember that came out? Is that just me? They were fashionable, weren't they, for women? Just, just nod your head and say, yeah, yeah, they were us. And they have these kind of, uh, the basic uh, leather sandals with straps that go around the ankles. And then some, uh, these one, the women's ones didn't come with the straps up to the leg, but some of them have straps that go up to the, to the leg. And they had metal studs on the bottom as well. So they were firm in the fact that they would keep your feet firm on the ground if you had to stand strong for something. But they were flexible enough for you to be agile and to move quickly and to change direction if you were in battle. So then the, the, the parallel is very simple. Paul is talking about, about spreading the gospel of peace. Being, being stand, stand fast, standing firm in, in our faith, in the gospel of peace, but also being able to move and tell others about this faith we have in Jesus. Then he talks about the shield of faith. So, belt of truth on, breastplate of righteousness, your sandals, your shoes that spread the gospel of peace, then the shield of faith. And this would have been called, apparently commentators refer to the scutum, I can't, I should have probably checked how you pronounce these words. Scutum, scutum, I'm not completely sure. If you type it into Google, you'll have some kind of phonetics pronunciation. But it's a bigger shield, about 1.2 meters, and would have protected them from more than the smaller circular shield that you might have seen in movies. It was more agile for, for battle scenes. This one was more of a protective shield, covered more of the body. And the idea here is against the, evil, the arrows of the evil one, the accusations, the lies, to which we are, are being told that we're not good enough, that we don't have this faith in Jesus, this God doesn't exist. Whatever these lies and accusations may be, the shield of faith is that steadfastness. And no, we know our relationship with God. We know our faith in God is real. It is that strength to stand against these fiery arrows of the spiritual forces of evil. Then there's the, the helmet of salvation 
And I have to admit, earlier, when Becky was doing the brilliant kids' talk with a, with a fan, I was suddenly reminded of, in, in Cyprus, you had the, when I used to live there for three years, you had the fans on the ceiling. And I had this brilliant moment when my friend, he, he, my dad had once brought home an, uh, a helmet from Iraq, one of uh, the Iraqis' helmets, when he went, he's an army chaplain, I should probably have said that. And I had it on my wall, on my, on my bunk bed. And there was the fan, and my friend jumped onto my bunk bed. And I just remember, he hit his head on the fan, and if that wasn't painful enough, because these things are metal and spin quickly, he fell back into my wall. And I remember watching as the helmet just fell off the wall and cracked him on the head. Absolutely brilliant. I'm just relating the fans and the helmets. That's how my brain works. Apologies. And that's related really profoundly to this text, because it tells you that helmets are important, because if they hit you on the head, it hurts. Oh... So this helmet of salvation, um, it would have, would have been the Roman helmet, which would have, protect, would have been made of iron or, or steel, iron or bronze, sorry, and would have protected them from most things apart from maybe an axe or a hammer. And again, it's that sense you put the helmet of salvation on and you are steadfast in your knowledge that you are saved, that one day you will be with Jesus for eternity. What a truth to hold to, right? What a truth when, when we feel that we're not worthy to understand that we will one day be with Jesus for eternity. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the, the Word of God. It's the Bible, right? To many, in many extents, that learning God's Word, that, that defense, but also at times the attack of His Word against the spiritual forces of evil. In Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted, and it says this. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished, as you would understand from a long time of fasting. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. So in this moment, where he is famished beyond belief, he still stands strong against Satan in using a passage of Scripture. The Bible as a defense, as our sword in times of need, as our attack when our identity is being challenged by the accuser. And then finally, Paul goes on to to mention prayer. And it kind of, in the text, it seems, because he doesn't mention it as a piece of armor, as if he's kind of just forgotten about it and gone, oh, and you should probably pray as well. That's important. Someone's telling me in the background, you should pray. That's important. But actually, I like the message translation here because it says, in the same way, prayer is essential to the ongoing warfare. It's not something that's just added on, something that you should probably do as well as putting the rest of the armor on. But if you like it, it's the very life and strength of the, of the armor. The armor protects us because of prayer, because we are in constant conversation and communion with God. The importance of prayer is focused. When Paul goes on to say, pray always, pray in the Spirit, pray about everything in, in every way you know how. And keep all this in mind, pray on behalf of God's people. Keep on praying fervently and be on the lookout until evil has been stayed. And please pray for me. Pray the truth will be before me, before, with me before I even open my mouth. Ask the Spirit to guide me while I boldly defend the mystery that is the good news, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So pray that I can bravely pronounce the truth as I should. The armor of God is effective because of prayer. And in communion and conversation with God, the prayer finds, the the, the armor finds its strength as He works through us. 
So this is great, right? The armor of God is brilliant. It's a nice concept. We understand it. When you link it to a picture of a Roman soldier, it might make sense to you. It's fun to talk about this stuff. But the thing I've been agonizing this week is what does that look like in reality? What does that, what does that really look like on your front lines, in your everyday life, when you, when you go out of church and you go, how am I going to apply what we're saying at the front? And you go, armor of God. What does this look like? How does it make sense for us? And the more I thought about this, the more I prayed about this, the more I brought this to God, really not knowing what he wanted, the more it became so clear to me that what comes out of the text, to many extents, is this, is this sense of drawing near to God throughout the day. That is how we find the strength. In verse 10, he says this, Paul says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God. So the reason we have strength is because he is strong in us. The reason we have armor is because it is his armor. The reason we have any goodness to offer to anyone else is because he is good. The reason we have any light to give to anyone else is because he is light in the darkness. So it all comes from him. So if he's the very source of all of these things, if he's the source of this strength against the powers of evil, then surely it's in drawing near to him throughout the day that we find this strength, that we tap into this source of power, but into a relationship with Jesus that is rich. Amen? Are people in agreement with that? Because the way I've kind of often understood this text, and I think the way that maybe some of you might even understand it this morning, is that, that you get up in the morning. I remember my dad used to talk to me about this, and I would wake up, and I would, I would do this practice. It was almost a ritual. You'd put the armor of God on physically. You know, you would put the breastplate of righteousness. You'd do it in your room when no one else was watching. But you'd put the breastplate of righteousness on, the sandals for the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation. You would arm yourself with the armor of God. But then what is, when I was thinking about this recently, but then you kind of walk out into your day, and then that's kind of it. You know, then you kind of go into the normality of life and you've got the armor on, but what does that really look like? So it's here that I want to turn to the, the wise words of Brother Lawrence. People read the, familiar with the book? The Practice of the Presence of God. An absolute Christian treasure. If you're not a massive reader, it is about 67 pages long. So get a mum and get a mum to read it to you when you go to bed. That's the best way. And Brother Lawrence is, 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 at the start of this book, he's been interviewed by a guy called Joseph D. Beaufort. Joseph D. Beaufort. And then later on in the book, it's, it's basic letters that he's written to various other people encouraging them. And what he says in one of his interviews is, is Joseph acknowledges this about Brother Lawrence. It's really interesting. He says, It was observed that in the greatest hurry of business in the kitchen, he still preserved his recollection and heavenly-mindedness. He was never hasty nor loitering but did each thing in its season with an uninterrupted composure and tranquility of spirit. The time of business, said he, does not differ with me from the time of prayer. In the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed supper." Now, you may hear that and think, wow, they're really beautiful words. That is quite a challenge. You may hear that and go, really? It's a little bit unrealistic, isn't it, mate, that you've really had a sense of tranquility and peace in the busyness of the kitchen. But yet, what is brilliant about what Brother Lawrence talks about is he never once says, this just happened overnight. He never once says, you know what, I just started praying in the day and suddenly it was really fruitful and my relationship with God was amazing and, and that's all you need to do. Just pray when you're doing the dishes and suddenly the dishes will become this amazing spiritual act in which you draw near to God. 
In fact, what he says throughout, the very reason it's called practice the presence of God is that it's something that we're meant to practice, something that we're meant to work at, something we're meant to be intentional about. He goes on to say at the start of his book, he says, Brother Lawrence said that in order to form a habit of conversing with God continually and referring to him in all we do, we must at first apply to him with some diligence. Then after a little care, we would find his love inwardly excite us to it without any difficulty. How beautiful is that? That we're intentional in, in bringing God, in acknowledging God's presence in all the activities that we're involved in, all the busyness, the chaos, the noise. But that over a period of time, we get so used to doing this that in fact it's his love that inspires us to do it rather than the sense of discipline and devotion. We're inspired to do it just because we want to be in the presence of a God we love. We're called to practice the presence of God. How do we battle against the spiritual forces of evil in this dark place? We practice the presence of God. So I want to suggest, as you go out into, into your week this week, as you leave the church building, as you go about the normalities, what if we were more intentional about practicing the presence of God in what we do? Could our day maybe look more like this? So maybe you wake up, and I'm aware we've got lots of young families in the church. Maybe you wake up, and, and life is pretty chaotic from the moment you set out of bed to the moment you go back to bed again. It seems to be a transition of chaos to, to sleep and then chaos again. Maybe that's the case. So maybe actually it's when you wake up, you've only got five minutes of peace before you get the kids out of bed. Maybe that's the time that you and your, and, and your spouse, or if you're a single parent, it's in that moment that you just acknowledge God's presence. Open your Bible, spend a bit of time with him, even just for five minutes, that you acknowledge that God is with you, that he is in the day that you're waking up in his presence and to go with him into the day. Maybe you have more time. Maybe it's that, that journey on the way to work in the morning in the car that you find that peace of the moment to pray to God and start the day with him. Maybe, maybe you're retired and you've got more time in the morning and in fact you can wake up or, and you've got that, that time to spend a real focus in God's word and praying to him. Maybe then later it gets in the afternoon and, and, and you're in the, in the flow of the day, you're at the park with the kids, you're at work, you're at university, wherever it may be, you're involved in particular activities. And maybe you set a reminder on your phone just at 10.30 during your coffee break, just to thank God for something in a day. Maybe it's not your phone, maybe it's alarm on your watch, maybe you just are very good at remembering these kind of things. And, and, and in the middle of the day, you just offer a quick prayer to God to thank him for what's going on. Then at 12 o'clock, you do get a reminder on your phone because you set it to go off at 12 o'clock to remind you to say the Lord's Prayer. There's a prayer movement called the 24-7 prayer movement, and across the globe at 12 o'clock, people say the Lord's Prayer. People do it in all, all kinds of different countries. At 12 o'clock, they make a point of saying the Lord's Prayer. So maybe you just mutter it under your breath. Maybe you find a quiet place to say it out loud. Maybe it's on a run that you're doing at that time, and you're able to say it as you're running. But you say the Lord's Prayer. Then it comes to mid-afternoon. The day's been going on a bit. You're getting a bit tired. As you're sitting there at the computer, you think, do you know what? I'm just gonna... You just start reciting the scripture that you've been memorizing that week. You just go over a few of the passages. They give you a bit of encouragement. They remind you of what you're doing in that moment. They remind you that God is with you. It may be boring. It may be Excel sheets that you really don't like. But, but you know what? God is with you in this process. He is there. He loves the people that are surrounding you in the various offices. 
Maybe you, you actively do that because someone said something to you at work. And, and do you know what? That, the comment they made hurt a little bit. And there's that thought in your mind that's saying, do you know what? I'm not worthy. I, don't, I, don't, I should love Jesus more. And you say these words of Scripture just to encourage you, to bring you back to focus on him. Then you get home. You rush off to your church activities and you come back about, say, 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night, maybe even later. No, 7 o'clock at night. Anything at church starts at half 7, sorry. So, so you get home later, maybe 10, 11 o'clock, and you're walking home and you just pull up your iPhone, you look on a passage of Scripture, and you just pray as you're going home. Or maybe you have more time in the evening and you decide, you just, I, what I'm trying to set, it's a day in which we are intentional about bringing God into all of the activities of the day, just in small ways. It doesn't have to be big. But surely, if Brother Lawrence is anything to go by over time, as we go about doing this, as we go about with this intentional attitude, we find that we're just muttering in prayer to God. Have you ever experienced that? Where you've been focusing him on the week and you just start muttering to him. You're just praying to him. And next thing you know, it's not difficult. It's not hard. Why? Because, because you love him because you know he's with you, because you know he's there in all these different activities, so why wouldn't you talk to him? Why wouldn't you bring him into these situations? So while we're on our front line, are we practicing the presence of God? Let us bring God into all situations and truly practice the presence of God. Amen? Boom? Well, that will get boring one day. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, my, my prayer for us as a congregation, our prayer, is that as we start Monday morning tomorrow, that this stuff may become a reality. May you help us be intentional about acknowledging your presence with us in everything we do. And may you strengthen our armor that we may stand against the spiritual forces of evil that pervade this world and that on our front lines may we bring your light and may we bring your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.